Well, First Lady uh, Laura Bush tells the story of a time when she and President George W. Bush were going to visit his parents. Now, Laura Bush and, and President Bush were in the White House at the time. He was still president, but they were going on an overnight trip to, to go and see his father and, and his mother. And she said every morning, uh, President Bush gets up early. She says uh, at being at his parents' house was no exception. He got up about 6 o'clock, went down to get a cup of coffee, and his parents were already up. And so he sat down with his cup of coffee there on the sofa, and he put his feet up on the table. And at that point, his mother corrected him and said, George, get your feet off of my table. And her husband spoke up and said, Barbara, for goodness sake, he's the president of the United States. <laughs> and Mrs. Bush spoke up and said, I don't care who he is. I don't want his feet on my table. And so what do you think President Bush did? He took his feet off of his mom's table. He did what he was told to do. Kind of funny that the President of the United States was so quick to obey his mother. But it leaves us thinking about some issues and questions that are relevant in our own lives. The question is this, who is it that tells us what to do? Who is it that we are called to submit to? You know, in our culture, everyone says, just do what you want. Follow, follow your own nose. If you want to go there, then go there. If you want to do this, then do that. But is that the best way? Well, these are the questions that we'll think about this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Jonah. We'll be in Jonah chapter 1. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to, to reach right in front of you and grab a pew Bible. You can turn to page 820 and follow along with us. Now, Jonah... The prophet Jonah is the likely author of this book, though we don't know for sure. The, the reason we suggest that is because, or that's suggested is because there's a lot of autobiographical information in this book. Now, it is written from a third-person point of view, and some have said, well, if it's written from a third-person point of view, Jonah couldn't be the author. But, but other Old Testament authors uh, wrote books and referred to themselves uh, from a third-person point of view. So, so uh, it's likely that Jonah is the author now, Scripture presents this as historical narrative. In other words, Scripture presents the story of Jonah as having actually happened in history. Now, there are many who say there's no way the book of Jonah could be historical. It must be allegorical. We must understand it figuratively because what happens in here is just too much to swallow. It's just too much to swallow. And so... What we have to say is the Bible presents it as truth. And if we believe that God is able to create the whole universe and to sustain the amazing creation that we see, surely we can believe he has control over a big fish and a prophet named Jonah and a storm. Surely we can believe that these are miracles that God Almighty can accomplish. And not only that, when we look in Matthew 12, verse 40, you see that Jesus cites Jonah as a historical event. He doesn't say, well, the allegory of Jonah. No, he talks about Jonah as if it really happened because that's what the Bible teaches. So let's look together at Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. 
Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you, for I know that I'm to blame. For this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. In verse four, we see that the Lord hurled or threw a great wind at the sea. And this powerful wind, well, this powerful wind caused a great storm. The waters began to rage. The gusts were so powerful. They were told that the ship was threatening to break apart. You can almost hear the creaks and the boards as the waters rage. And we see that there's a real fear that the ship is about to sink. It's, the boat is clearly in duress. Where did this storm come from? Well, as we look in verse 4, it's quite clear. The Lord is the one who hurled that great wind. And that great wind is what brought that great storm And so the sailors are terrified and each one begins to cry out to his God. Imagine it's almost a chaotic scene. The storm is raging and each of these men is crying out loudly to his God, praying that the God would would rescue. As they're crying out, the storm's getting worse. It's not stopping. There's no relenting. No, they cry out to their gods and the waters are raging Harder, And so what do they do? They begin to go down into the hold of the boat and they begin to, to take the cargo out and throw it overboard hoping to keep the ship from sinking. Now this is really important to think about because what were they doing? They were throwing away their income. This was, this was their income. They're clearly desperate for their lives. And as they're throwing out the cargo, what do they run across? They run across the prophet Jonah. What's he doing? He's sound asleep. There's a storm going on. All these guys are crying out to their gods. And Jonah, he's sound asleep. Why would Jonah be sound asleep? How could he be in such a deep sleep in the midst of the storm, in the midst of all that's going on? It's probably this. It's probably the fact that he had been running from God, that he had been rebelling against God. And when we run from God and when we rebel against God, it takes a toll on us. We can hold up for a while perhaps. But after a time, it's exhausting. Physically, he's on the run. Emotionally, he's on the run. Spiritually, he's on the run. And he has worn out and he has fallen into deep sleep. 
while the storm rages. In verse 6, we see that the captain, he woke Jonah up. He He goes to Jonah and he says, get up, get up. And call out to your God, perhaps he'll save us. Now what's interesting to note is when when you go back up into verse 2, you remember that God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, that pagan city from an Israelite perspective, and to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't want to do that. And when God called to Jonah, this is what he said. He said, get up, go and preach. Or get up, go and call out, cry out to the people of Nineveh. Now, interesting, when the captain wakes Jonah up, he uses those, a couple of those same verbs. He uses this verb, get up. And he uses this verb, preach or cry out. And one wonders, as Jonah is awaking from his sleep, if he recognizes those words. Oh, those are the very words that he just heard from, from God. Those are the very words that, that he just heard as he rebelled against God and now he's hearing them again. What's echoing in his heart and in his soul? Is he recognizing the fact that God's not going to let him off the hook? Is he recognizing the fact that God will not leave him alone? But he hears these words, you get up and you call on your God. Now, Jonah gets up and the men begin to ask him all kinds of questions. They begin to to ask him about who he is and and what he's doing. So the storm is raging. The ship's on the verge of sinking. And in verse 7, the men are desperately figuring out how to survive. This storm was so unusual. It had been a good day for, for being on the sea. And then suddenly this violent storm comes and the men recognize in verse 7 that it had to be divine judgment. The storm was so surprising. It was so unusual that they recognized that this was the hand of a God. Now remember, all of these men are are polytheists except for Jonah. They believe in multiple gods. And so they're trying to figure out, we've called out to our gods, nothing has happened. We've got to do something to try to save ourselves. And so they decide to cast lots. Now this was a common practice among the ancients. And it's believed that lots were something like dice. Dice with alternating dark and light sides. And so you would, you would toss a couple of lots, much like you would toss a pair of dice. And if these lots landed on two light sides, the answer was yes. If they answered on two dark sides, the answer was no. If they, ans- if they, if they landed on a dark and a light side, you would throw the dice again. And so they're taking each sailor one by one. Is he the one? Two dark sides. No, he's not the one. Is he the one? Two dark sides. No, he's not the one. And one by one, they're going through these sailors and suddenly they get to Jonah and it lands. Both dice are on white. The answer is yes. God must have caused the lots to fall as they fell. That the men might recognize that Jonah was the man. And so, in verse 8, all eyes are on Jonah. He's the one. And they began to just spew questions at him. This is a matter of life and death. So they're trying to survive. They're trying to figure out who Jonah is and and who his gods are. And as they interrogate Jonah about what caused the storm, it could be that they were afraid that, that they had offended Jonah and Jonah's God was disciplining them for that. Or it could be that they feared Jonah had done something horrible and they have become accomplices from the perspective of Jonah's God. 
And so they're all facing this punishment together. But they were trying to understand why did the lot fall to Jonah? What do we need to do? So they began to ask Jonah all these questions about his identity. What what do you do for a living? Where are you from? Who are your people? Now, in many ways, what they were trying to discern is who his God was and what might have upset his God. Why might his God be anchored? Now, many of the ancients believed in three types of gods, uh, personal gods, family gods, and national gods. But generally, the national gods were considered preeminent or or primary. And so if they could get an understanding of of where he was from and, and who his particular god was, maybe they could understand how to placate or soothe the anger of his god. That's what they're looking for. That's, they're, they're grasping at this point. They're grasping at straws. They're just desperate to live. In verse 9, Jonah told his shipmates that he was a Hebrew. And he recognized that, that they were asking about his religious beliefs. So he said that he worshipped the Lord God of the heavens. Now what's Jonah saying to them? He's saying to them, I worship the God of the heavens. In other words, I worship the one true God, the God over all. That, that's the God that I worship. And he says he's the, the God who created. So Jonah saying to him, everything that you see, he's the creator of all of it. In fact, Jonah says, this was really appropriate for what was going on. He's the creator of the earth or the land and the seas. What's Jonah saying? Jonah is saying his God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over the seas, and yes, he is ultimately sovereign over this storm. He is the one true God, superior to any other alleged God. And so, one wonders as Jonah is uttering these words that he's the God of the heavens, the creator of the earth and the seas, if he doesn't begin to wonder to himself, why on earth did I think I could get away from him? How could I have thought something so foolish? And friends, don't we, after having gone our own way for a period of time, often wake up and ask ourselves the very same question. How on earth did I think I could do this without God? How on earth did I think I could go my own way? That that would work out? How could I have believed that? Well, these questions must have been on Jonah's mind as he struggled with with what was going on. In verse 10, the shipmates become even more fearful. They they say, you know what, we know this is divine discipline, so, so what's going to happen? They ask Jonah, how could you do this to us? How could you put our lives in jeopardy? Jonah came clean. He told them what he was doing. He told them that he was trying to flee from the presence of God, from the call of God to preach to to the people of Nineveh. So the guilty man has been discovered. And now one question remains. Look in verse 11. They asked the guilty prophet, what do we do with you? But what do we do with you? These men didn't know his God. They didn't know the God of Israel. They weren't sure how to to soothe his anger, how to placate him. And so they say, what should we do to make the waters calm? Now, throwing out the cargo had bought them some time. But what we see over the course of this narrative is that the seas just keep raging more and more. And so they're moments away from this ship breaking apart and sinking. And they are desperate. In verse 12, Jonah told them simply, you must kill me. You must kill me, throw me overboard. Jonah recognized 
that he was going to face death for his rebellion against God. He was a prophet of God and he had refused the call of God and Jonah recognized what awaited him. He knew that his sin was the reason that all of them were suffering. He sees that he's solely responsible for the calamity. The storm had come for him. There was no denying it. In verse 13, the men didn't want to kill him. So what did they do? They rowed desperately to land. Now, it may be that, that they had just gone out into the water that day, and so they still weren't really far from, from the land. Or it may be that they had taken a coastal route where, where they kept land in view. We, we don't know for sure, but at any rate, land was in view, and they were trying desperately to row to the land. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. And so they thought, maybe we can just make it to the land. Let's just try a little bit longer. But what we see is that the storm grew even more in terms of intensity. Their attempt was futile. And what we recognize is this. God would not permit their effort to stop his discipline of this rebellious prophet. God wouldn't permit it. You see, God is sovereign over the storm. They were fearful if they threw Jonah overboard that that God might hold them accountable for his death, for for innocent blood. Now it's interesting that these pagans demonstrated more regard for one man's life than Jonah did for tens of thousands of people's lives in the city of Nineveh. One commentator also noted that it was interesting how Jonah was willing to, how Jonah was willing to rebel against God when these pagans were so eager to obey him, to follow him. Now in verse 14, the sailors recognize that throwing Jonah overboard is the only choice that they have. And yet again, they're, they're fearful of God. They call out to, to God in prayer. They were pleading with God, don't hold us accountable for, for this man's blood. And they finally say to God, this is what you planned God, this is your will. He must go overboard because of his rebellion. This is what you require. In verse 15, they did it. They picked Jonah up and they tossed him over that ship's edge. They hurled him into the sea. Now imagine what's flying through their minds as they watched Jonah disappear down into those raging waters. And then suddenly, the wind stopped. The sea was calm and tranquil. Imagine what's going on in their hearts. In verse 16, it's likely that at this point, the the men had made it to land, for they made sacrifices to, to God. It's very unlikely that they would have left animals on the ship in the process of trying to, to survive. And so more than likely, they... The the sea's calmed and they've rowed back to land. And now they're worshiping Jonah's God. They're they're offering sacrifices to him. They're, They're making vows to him. What just happened? God used a rebellious prophet who refused to go to a pagan people, a Gentile people in the city of Nineveh to save a whole ship full of Gentiles, a whole ship full of pagans. Isn't that amazing to think about? That's what just happened. So what does this passage teach us about God and about our relationship to God? Well, it teaches us this, because God is sovereign over our lives. We should pursue and obey Him. Because God is sovereign over our lives, we should pursue and obey Him. You see, God was at work 
in the storm. God was at work as they threw those lots and the lot pointed to Jonah. And God was at work sovereign in bringing these Gentiles into a saving relationship with himself. So what is our response to a God who rules over all? Well, friends, our response ought to be to say, God, I want to follow you. I want to pursue you. I want to obey you. I read the story of a woman whose, whose husband had picked her up after some shift work at a hospital that she worked at. They were about to park at, at their apartment complex, and right as they were parking, they heard these loud popping noises. And as they got out of the car, they realized there were three bullet holes in the passenger side of the car and two in the trunk. And as they were walking into their apartment, the woman realized that there was a bullet hole right through her purse. And she found a bullet in her wallet. Now this woman said to her, the fact that she was alive was a miracle, that God had saved her. What this lady realized is what all of us must realize. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. We don't understand that fully. We can't grasp that. But she recognized that he was the king. That he had saved and protected her. And we've got to realize that too. We can try to go our own way. We can try to to say to God, you know what? I'll do things my way. But friends, we're not sovereign. We're not the king. He's the king. He's the ruler over all. So instead of fighting him, instead of ignoring him, instead of trying to pretend that we're going to be able to live life without him, instead we should fall on our knees before him in humble obedience. And we should pursue him with all that we are. What does this mean in our lives? How do we flush out the, the truths that we see in this passage in our lives. Well, first, we recognize God disciplines his children. Jonah belonged to God. He was, he was God's prophet. And yet he faced the discipline of God. God's discipline is an act of his mercy. It doesn't feel that way when we're experiencing it. It didn't feel that way to Jonah, but God's discipline is an act of his mercy. You see, in Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, the author says this, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What is this passage teaching us? That if you belong to God, God loves you enough to discipline you. When you begin to go your own way, he's not going to leave you alone. He's going he's to bring you back. Could it be today that you're living in such a way that you're inviting the discipline of God into your life? That's not a place we want to be. But it's exactly where Jonah found himself. Jonah was doing what Jonah wanted to do. Is that your story? You're doing what you want to do? Well, friend, if you belong to God... He's not far behind. He's coming for you. Not to hurt you, but because he loves you. What parent who loves their children refuses to discipline them? What parent who really loves their children says, you know what? They can do whatever they please. I don't care. No, if a parent loves their child, 
They stay after him for their good. And God stays after you for your good. Next, ask God to give you a tender heart toward him. Ask God to give you a tender heart toward him. Do you live your life reverently before God and in awe of him? Or do you live how you want to live? You do what you want to do. So let's ask the Lord to help us long for him, to help us long to obey him. James 4, 6 says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want God's help, then humbly come before him and say, God, I've been going my own way. God, I've been ignoring you. I've been distracted, chasing this, chasing that. But God, I'm, I'm saying to you, I need help. Will you rescue? Will you help? And God says when you come to him humbly, oh, God gladly gives you his grace. He gladly helps. Is your heart toward the Lord more like a bulletproof vest? Or is your heart toward the Lord more like a lump of clay? that's moldable and shapeable? Is your heart hard, hard before the Lord? Or is your heart soft and tender before him? Today, if you find that you have a hard heart toward him, you know what the scriptures teach us? If we call out to him, if we ask him for help, he can take that old hard heart of ours and he can soften it up. He can help us to follow him, to obey him. Next, as we think about fleshing this out into our lives, recognize that God is ruler over all. God is ruler over all. He's able to preserve his people in the face of storms. Don't think for a minute that that storm had gotten so strong and so powerful that God couldn't stop it. No, every wave was under the control of God. Every wave. He's ruler over all. And when life feels completely out of control, oh, don't believe that for a minute. If you belong to God, he is at work in your life. And there's nothing that's out of his control. Even in Jonah's sinful rebellion, God saved a ship full of pagans, a ship full of Gentiles. God was at work. And even in our rebellion and in our sin, God is still at work if we belong to him, if we are his children. So do you look at God more like a beggar pleading with you? Oh, please come follow me. Come follow me. I don't have anything. Come follow me. I really need followers. Please follow me. Please, 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 please follow me. Or do you look at him like the king of kings who rules over all the universe? Which God is it that you envision? Oh, please, don't think for a minute that he's a beggar pleading with you to come. No, he is the ruler of the universe. And he says to you, come. Come have life. Come follow me. As we think of applying this in our lives, next, your only hope is in a relationship with God. Your only hope is in a relationship with God. You see, that ship could offer these men no security. Their only real security was found in the hands of God. And that's true in your life. It may be that we think we've got all this money, got a good retirement account, got a lot of, 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 of assets, and I'm safe, I'm secure. Oh, friend, 
It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Whatever we think will bring us security, these things can't. They don't. Where we find security is only in a relationship with God. Those Gentile sailors were chasing after their gods. As they cried out to their gods, it was meaningless. Their gods offered no hope. But then they found genuine hope when they turned to the one true God. They found themselves to be rescued. John 17, 3 says it like this. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, many are chasing after the gods of this world. We're chasing after materialism and and money. We're chasing after status and popularity and power. We're chasing after pleasure. But these, well, these are like the false gods that the sailors were crying out to. They offer no true hope. They offer no real security. True hope, true security is found only in God You see, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? The reason that Jesus died is because God is completely and absolutely pure. And in his purity, he can't accept sin. So because all of us are guilty of sin, God couldn't have a relationship with us. God couldn't allow us to be in heaven with him. And so what did God do? God didn't say, well, it's no big deal and compromise his character. We'll let all the sinners who want to come into heaven come in. To do so would have been to have changed who he was. It's an impossibility. But what he did do is he sent his own son to come and to take the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took that punishment upon himself. And so God's justice and his holiness was honored. Because his son died in our place. Then he was buried and he came back to life. And when we turn from our sin and we call out to him in faith, the Bible says that God forgives us of all of our sin and that he gives us credit for the perfect righteousness of Christ. So now when God looks down, he doesn't see me and all of my sin. He sees a heart that's been washed clean by the blood of Christ and he sees Christ's perfect righteousness credited to my account and he says, Lonnie, that's my boy because the holiness of Christ covers me. I ask you today, have you called out to Jesus in faith? Have you experienced his forgiveness? Has he covered you with his perfect righteousness? Now some have envisioned that they'll go to heaven and there'll be this great big pair of scales there. You did this good thing and that good thing and this good thing and that. Come on in. Yeah, your good outweighs your bad. Welcome to heaven. High five. Friends, it's nothing like that. All that it takes to separate you from a God who is blazingly pure is one sin. And friend, we're more than qualified when it comes to one sin. We got a whole lot more than that. It will not be that your good outweighs your bad. It will not be that you were baptized. It will not be that you were sprinkled when you were a child, that you went through catechism or some other type of confirmation. It won't be any of those things. It won't be that you came to church every Sunday. It won't be that you were kind to people. None of those things, when you stand before God, none of those things 
are going to bring you into a right relationship with God. The only way is through Jesus. It's through calling out to him in faith. And so I ask you, have you ever done that? Has that turning point in your life ever happened? If you were trapped in a burning building and a fireman came to rescue you, and you said to him, no, no, I I don't think so, I'll pass. Well, you'd be crazy because that's your hope of escaping. That's your hope of living. You wouldn't tell the fireman, no, no, I'm good. Just keep on going. No, you'd say, rescue me. You bet, let's go. And yet some of you here today are hearing the gospel. You're hearing that God's saying to you, hey, come on, let's go. And you're saying to him, no, thanks. I'll do my own thing. I'll go my own way. Friend, that's crazy. That's crazy. You're in a burning building. Oh, I'll pass. Today, God is calling you, if you do not know him, to turn to him, the king of kings and the ruler of all. You see, because God is ruler over our lives, we should pursue him. We should follow him. I heard the story of a man who had attempted to quit smoking over and over and over. Every time was a failed attempt. He was an army surgeon and and he went in for an annual uh, physical every year. And so the, the army doctor that he saw began to rebuke him for smoking. And he said, you've got to quit smoking. This is destroying your health. It's, it's hurting you. And so this sergeant told the doctor, I have tried, I have tried, I have tried, I have tried, and every single time I failed. And so the doctor looked at this sergeant and he said to him, do you see these two bars on my lapel? And the sergeant said to this doctor, yes, sir, I do. And he said, what do they mean? The sergeant spoke up and said, they mean that you're a captain. And the doctor looked at him in the eyes and he said, that is exactly right. I outrank you and I command you today. I order you today, do not smoke another cigarette. And what that sergeant did is he went home and he never, ever smoked another cigarette. And this is why he had become so a part of the army culture. He had become so ingrained in him that he had to follow direct orders that he simply couldn't bring himself to reject that direct order and he could not bring himself to smoke another cigarette. And friends, understand this. As followers of Christ, we've been given direct orders by the king of kings, by the ruler over all, to follow him, to pursue him, to obey him, by his grace, to walk with him. Why would we do any other Why would we go our own way? Direct orders not from a captain or even a general. Direct orders from the king of kings, the ruler of all. You see, because God is sovereign over all, we must pursue him. We must obey him. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you, think about your life right now. Are are, are you going your own way? Just kind of drifting along. Not that perhaps you're just openly trying to rebel against God, but just that you're ignoring him. You're busy. You're distracted with with this and that. And God, well, when you can work him in, you will. Hopefully, maybe. 
You know what he's saying to you today? He's saying to you, it's time for you to repent. It's time for you to come home, to get back on track. It's time for you to obey the orders that I've given you. And they're orders for your good. And so let's quit rebelling against him. Let's quit trying to ignore him. And let's call out to him and say, God, help me to want to obey you. I call out to you. Change my heart. Change my heart. In reality, as I mentioned earlier, there are many in a room this size who've never truly followed Christ, who have never had that turning point where they've been born again, where they've said to Jesus, I've gone my own way. I believe you died and rose again, and I want to follow you. And this morning, I urge you to do just that. I urge you to quit running, and I urge you to run instead to Jesus right into his arms. Let's pray together.